Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Peter Noguera, Dean of the Rossi School of Education at the University of Southern California. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. Today, we're gonna to talk about anti-racism and critical race theory in schooling. Pedro, how do you think about really anti-racist education and critical race theory? And when you look at this whole debate we're in, what, what, do, the, what do these terms mean to you? Well, you know, I think the irony is most people don't know what critical race theory is. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, you know, abstract concept that is not widely circulating. And so it's ironic that now it's become the subject of legislation in several states. Um, for me, anti-racist education uh, is all just a way of thinking about how to approach the subject of race as they affect education and society. Um, and you know, as, as we can imagine, there are lots of different ways to go about that. And there are a lot of uh, different points of view. You know, for me, it's funny, when, when you talk to regular people about anti-racism, or when you and I were writing about some of this in the book, it seems like it's pretty easy to have a reasonable conversation. Look, schools obviously need to make every child feel welcome and valued. Uh, there are whole populations of kids, especially black and brown kids, for whom we have not always done this as well, but there's certainly white populations that we haven't done it as well for. And this is something a lot of people I think are comfortable with um, in theory. And if anti-racism means making sure we're teaching kids not to be racists, it means making sure that we're finding places where schools are unintentionally racist, it seems like we're on the same page. For me, I think a lot of the problem comes out that some of the folks who've been held up as kind of the, the, the signature stars of anti-racist education, especially uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, you know, his money quote on this stuff is that, you know, if you're not an anti-racist, you're a racist. And there's no such thing as, he says, there's no such thing as idea. Every idea is either anti-racist or racist. And then you start getting into the particulars and I'm like, wait a minute, there's a right view according to him on capital gains taxes. There's a right view on school accountability. There's a right view on pot legalization. And at least for somebody like me, it starts to feel, it starts to feel pretty far removed from making schools places that aren't racist and that welcome every child. And it starts to feel much more about an ideological agenda um, that's wrapped up in the garb of, uh, of racial equity. So, you know, I, I prefer not to just focus in on one individual yeah. and their views on this stuff. But, uh, you know, I think in general, we want schools, as you just said, to be places where all kids feel welcome, feel supported, um, it's ironic that um, right now I'm looking at data in California, the parents that are least likely to want to send their kids back to school are black parents. Um, and, uh, and that's true in places like San Francisco and LA. These are districts that have embraced anti-racist education and the rhetoric of it at least. Um, and the black parents are saying, my kids did not feel welcome, did not feel supported. Um, I prefer... <laughs> online instruction where I can see what's happening to them, then sending them to schools where um, they don't believe they're treated fairly. And that, I think that's a major uh, indictment, but it also says there's a real disconnect sometimes between the rhetoric and the reality. 
And, uh, and I, I prefer to focus on what's the reality, what's really happening in schools, what are, what's going on with kids, how are they uh, experiencing their education, how are they being treated? Um, and I think that sometimes in all the, these discussions that gets lost. You know, and that's something that you and I have talked about a lot over time is that, you know, the more practical we get on these things, the easier it is to start to find constructive places to engage. Um, so, you know, uh, in line of that, so what are a couple of the things when, you, when you're out talking to folks and, you know, they're asking you, you know, Dean, what are some suggestions on how to make schools, which really are more welcoming to kids who have felt excluded, um, to make them feel safe, to like approach, uh, uh, tackle curricular questions? What are a couple of things that you tend to recommend? You know, I always come bring it back to the, the basics of education. You know, do, what's the, um, do kids feel supported? Do kids feel as though the adults that are serving them, the teachers care about them, are interested in them? Um, and, and are schools really responsive to their needs? And I, and I think this is a, a real issue um, that faces many, many public schools have struggled with, especially in urban areas, uh, the impersonal nature of schooling, and the ways in which uh, kids a lot of times get lost and parents feel unable to navigate the system. And I think it's one of the reasons why we're seeing this reluctance about returning in, in many cases. So I, I, for me, the conversation, every conversation, whether it be about equity or about um, how to meet the needs of kids who have historically not been served well, has to come back to the basic issues of teaching and learning, school culture, how do you foster good, positive relationships for learning? Um, and, and, and I think that that too often gets uh, ignored. And uh, because of that, um, we don't make as much progress. I, I'm gonna be uh, in a conversation about reading in a moment. We're talking about the science of reading and why certain kids still lag behind. And I, and I think a lot of times the education uh, specialists don't, they, they, they miss the point. It's not simply about the methods through which we teach reading. It's about how kids are treated. And because uh, when kids are treated with support, we can teach all kinds of kids, whether they have learning disabilities or not. So um, I think a lot of times this stuff gets, uh, gets lost. You know, this reminds me, you and I, we were speaking, I think it was last year, to a, uh, a group of doctoral students at a major university. And there was a student who was, you know, she shared with you, she was very excited that she was, her school, she was no longer going to teach to kill a mockingbird. And she seemed to expect that you were going to kind of give her a whole bunch of pats on the back because she stripped this out of the curriculum. And I thought your response to that was really interesting. And she seemed very confused by your response. Could you talk a bit about that? Because I think people would be interested. Yeah, um, basically, I, you know, I start from the, pre the premise, I'm against censoring books. <laughs> I'm against banning books. I think that's a pretty, um, uh, the wrong way to go. Um, and, and, and really what we wanna do is encourage critical analysis of literature and develop those kinds of skills in, in kids. Um, and so my challenge to this student was, instead of focusing on banning particular books, that we really should be focused on how, we, how do we teach this stuff? Um, and how do we make sure uh, that, that when we're teaching issues, particularly issues that deal with race, I think about Huckleberry Finn, uh, for example, uh, classic American literature that's been banned in, in some places because of the language in, in the book. And again, I feel that 
it's more about how we teach it than whether we teach it at all. Um, and I, I think it's a, it's a very slippery slope when we got, start going down banning books, what ends up uh, out of reach uh, of, of children. You know, so for me, one of the things that there's been obviously this, we started with talking about some of the legislation that's going on and there's been this huge backlash on the right. And for me, I think one of the things that's fueled it is not what you're talking about. <laughs> I think what people hear the way you're talking about this, there's a lot of head nodding. This just makes a lot of sense. But as you're well aware, there's also professional development seminars going on across the country right now where folks are saying that like, look, if you wanna be an anti-racist educator, you've got to fight white supremacy. And they put up PowerPoint slides with white supremacist values. And it turns out that hard work is a white supremacist value. And it turns out that linear thinking is a white supremacist value. And one, I always wonder what, you know, what, what, what you know, air traffic controllers in Thailand think about the notion that like only, that, that somehow there's a racial monopoly on linear thinking. Um, but also this strikes me that this has in many ways become the face of anti-racist education for lots of school districts in a way that I think is hugely poisonous and also seems hugely removed from the practical stuff you're talking about. I, I'm curious kind of, I mean, you sit in the middle of one of the nation's elite ed schools. So you've got a really good vantage point on this. How do you make sense of it and what's your reaction? Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. I think it's it's unreasonable to um, equate certain values like hard work and linear thinking with uh, white supremacy. Um, I, I, you know, come on, hard work <laughs> is something we want all kids uh, to demonstrate. Um, I, I, I think that that at the extremes in the way this gets talked about, it can get ridiculous, and um, and and that's where good judgment and discretion a lot of times gets lost. And I, I always worry about this uh, when I see these discussions playing out in schools, because um, I, I think that um, the interpretation uh, can become uh, a caricature of what we would think uh, good education is. Uh, and I, again, I, I go back to what I was saying earlier about the importance of, of really investing in helping teachers to think through, how do I teach difficult topics controversial topics in ways that allow my students to understand the issues, but to think critically, make up their own mind, look at evidence. This, these are important skills that education should be striving for. You know, we've had this debate about civics education, and I know you, we've talked about this as well. And um, I, I think that it's, you know, we get more hung up on the content of what we're teaching than on how we're teaching it and what are the goals that we're teaching. And I, I think that that is a, is a, a point that gets lost too. Yeah, no, you know, I mean, part of us talking to a funder today, uh, we're talking about, you know, they're saying, look, part of the goal here is they approach, is they, they're doing their anti-racist efforts is they're worried about developing relationships for kids and they're worried about reaffirming identities, which I totally respect. And, and I understand that if, children feel like their identity, like their racial or ethnic identities being devalued by school. That's an enormous problem and that we need to address that. But I was hugely concerned that we're going the other direction, that we're teaching children that they have one identity and that it's their racial or ethnic identity. And I think that strikes me as poisonous that, 
you know, I mean, sociology for decades has taught us that we, right, we have whole range of identities and some of kids' most powerful relationships are with a coach um, because they have a bond through sports or with a music teacher or with the debate coach or through, you know, their, 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 their youth pastor. And it seems to me that anti-racism is somehow putting a huge, not just a thumb, but a whole fist on the scale that we want to talk about kids' identities in terms of race and ethnicity. And it feels almost like we're squeezing out the room for all of these other kind of cross-cutting identities that are really healthy and important. And we could talk about this legislation and whether, whether we think it's, you know, helpful or hurtful. But, but it seems to me part of the impulse here, which I think is admirable, is making sure that schools are not making a child's ex educational experience one-dimensional in terms of race and ethnicity, that that should be part of a story, but it should only be a part of the story. Absolutely. And, and I think we, the, the, the risk is that you're actually reinforcing stereotypes about race um, when you approach it in, in the ways that you described, when you, because, you know, identity, as you just pointed out, is complex. Um, I was thinking about uh, what the, 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 when, when Harry Potter was such a craze amongst kids um, a, a few years back. And, uh, you know, when, you, when I would talk to kids about what it was about Harry Potter that they liked, I would hear the fact that he was an orphan, you know, the fact that he was a wizard, right? And, and kids of all kinds could relate to Harry Potter and the story. And so on a cultural level, you could say not related to who they were, but on other levels, you know, kids are capable of using their own imagination to make connections and, and we should never lose sight of that. So, you know, again, a lot of this comes back down to uh, how we conceive of, of these issues and, and uh, particularly related to race. Um, and I, I worry that on the right, this, uh, the censorship that I see about to take place um, and, and being reinforced uh, uh, is going to hurt all kinds of kids because all kinds of kids, you know, we just marked the 100th anniversary of uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre. I didn't learn about that in school. Um, uh, and I think most kids- Neither, neither did I, right. neither did I. And, and I think all kids uh, of, of different backgrounds need to learn about those parts of American history so they can understand how our current realities uh, in ways that uh, typically they don't. So, uh, you know, I think on both sides, there's a way in which the issues can get framed in ways that end up limiting uh, the educational experience of kids and, and really um, hurting us in the long run. You know, just to illustrate your point here, I mean, you know, I taught, you know, we both taught social studies once upon a time. I didn't learn about Tulsa until I was into my 30s. I was out of my PhD at Harvard before I ever learned um, about what had happened in Tulsa. Um, and, you know, similarly, it wasn't until just a couple of years ago that I, that I realized that the schools uh, named after Confederate generals and Confederate political leaders and stuff, um, that these were named during massive resistance. I had just never thought about it. And for me, that profoundly changed the meaning. And I, you know, there's a hundred odd schools still named after Confederate leaders. And I believe once I, once I had learned about that and thought about it, it totally changed the way I thought about the issue. And I think those schools should be renamed. You know, to your point, the idea that we do not want that we want to shy away from any of this 
is just wrongheaded. And so for me, as I look at this legislation that's been passed in a handful of states and that's under consideration, I think there's, you know, in the, if you read the media on this, like I feel like with the media coverage of so much stuff that we support on the right, um, I, I think it tends to be um, <laughs> somewhat, some, somewhat uncharitable. But I think, I think there's constructive and a destructive uh, stuff going on here. Um, I think the destructive stuff is when you see these politicians either talking about banning critical race theory, um, which the bills don't actually do. Most of the bills don't even mention it. Since nobody, like you say, nobody outside of the academy actually knows what the heck it is. Um, but they, when they either talk about banning it or when the bills try to stymie and stifle um, student learning, when they say these topics should not be addressed, should not be covered, um, that's, that, that, that's just hugely destructive for legislators to get in the business of telling schools not to teach children. Um, on the other hand, what I think uh, some of the legislation does, like Idaho's, for instance, um, is it's really mirroring language out of the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. It's saying that no student should be made to feel harassed or uh, uncomfortable on the basis of race or gender, religion, or you know, ethnicity. And I have a hard time seeing how anybody could take issue with states reminding people in, in school systems and in schools that they need to actually pay attention to the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act, whether that student is you know, black or white, whether that student is Muslim or Jewish. Well, you know, you've been following the legislation, I guess, at a, in more detail than I. I've been following the headlines and been concerned about what's been going on. And, and um, but I would agree that it, it, a lot of it comes down to interpretation and then to implementation. Um, you know, if, if, if parents can now say, well, when we learned about the Tulsa race massacre, my white children were, felt uncomfortable because they felt uh, guilty uh, and, and I don't wanna, I wanna protect them from this information, then I have a problem with that. A lot of it comes back down to how is this gonna be implemented in schools and how will educators either be limited or are, are empowered um, by these laws. Uh, you know, I, I, when I was a school board member in Berkeley back in the early 90s, we had a big debate about textbooks, textbook adoption, because local school boards had to approve them. And uh, I remember we were in a quandary because the new textbooks that we were being asked to adopt were clearly better than the old textbooks, better in that they, you know, in, in every way, better graphics, better information, and in the, from the standpoint of being more inclusive. Um, but they still perpetuated certain myths. Uh, for example, at the beginning of the uh, uh, fourth grade textbooks that Columbus discovered America. And I say, you can only discover a place that's uninhabited, right? Uh, you, he could say he encountered America. <laughs> he was the first European to get there. Um, but ultimately, whether or not we ban the books was less important than what teachers do with that information. And that's what I had to remind my colleagues on the board. Teachers need to be able, it can't be force-fed information. They need to be able to use the information to make good judgments about how to teach it. And uh, again, I think that we lose sight of that in many of these debates. I, I, I think that is, I think that is so, 
I like that. I, I mean, I think the, the supplementation point is crucial. And yeah, I mean, uh, what, what I will absolutely give up to you is if somebody tries to use, say, the Idaho legislation to say, you know, I don't want schools teaching about Tulsa because it makes my kid feel better. I don't want kids teaching about the three-fifths compromise because my kid will, I'm 100% with you. But on the other hand, I, I think these things are very useful that uh, I don't think public schools are places and we might just disagree on this, but I don't think that the instructional role for teachers is to have kids label themselves as oppressed or oppressors um, based on pigmentation. And I think that is, you know, that, that feels to me like harassment. If you choose to go to a college and you choose and, you know, and you go to a college and you're the age of majority and you go on a privilege walk and you and you're enrolled in this course, I'm not crazy about it, but it see it feels to me very different from public schools um, for children who are you know in compulsory attendance with uh, taxpayer dollars to do these exercises with you know children who are eight or twelve years old, but but it seems to me courts and and to your point uh, school districts need to make these distinctions between people being uncomfortable because ideas are being discussed tough versus schools engaging in practices which are explicitly labeling children in ways based on race or ethnicity or religion? Yeah, so I think that schools should be a place uh, where kids learn about differences and learn about how to live in a world with kids whose um, experiences are different than their own. I know that, uh, for example, my kids were growing up and uh, they, you know, one of my, my son went to school with a girl who was in a wheelchair and uh, she was in many of his classes throughout elementary school. And they just learned to be not only he, but sensitive to having somebody who didn't have the privilege of being able to walk around, who needed more support than other kids. I think that was a great lesson for he and his peers to, to be exposed to that. And I think that's an important part of education is to help kids to see outside of themselves and understand the experience of others. So uh, again, it, it comes back to how is this stuff done? Um, and I do think I, I'm not interested in labeling kids as oppressors and oppressed. Uh, I think those kinds of labels, those kind of dichotomies um, uh, aren't, aren't particularly helpful. But I do think helping them understand that oppression is real, that there, that there have been um, examples of, of, of oppression throughout our history and throughout the reality today is an important lesson for kids to get to. I guess we'll, we'll, I think we're about out of time, so we can leave it with this. I, I just don't, for the life of me, understand how you and I, who come at this stuff pretty differently, can have an incredibly measured, kind of friendly conversation about this. And then we turn this off and we're all losing our minds all the time. I think people, you know, it's just a very strange and frustrating moment because, you know, when we talk about it this way, there, there's going to be points of serious disagreement and actually doing it is challenging as heck. But, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of what we're trying to do here, even you and me, we're not all that far apart on. Yeah, I think you and I have had a lot of practice, Rick, over the last year and a half, um, engaging this sort of dialogue. You know, you know, I think our hope was that we were modeling what more people would do um, at, in, at, a, at the legislative level, but also in schools. And, uh, you know, I still hold on to that hope that, that, that the book and these podcasts have been helpful for that purpose. So thanks for um, participating in this search for common ground. Absolutely.
And uh, hey, pal, well, and we're going to take a break for a couple months for the summertime. Um, we've got other commitments. And I guess we'll pick this back up uh, about Labor Day when the new school year begins. The two of us have much more to say, but we're out of time for today. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, conversations on schooling. And thanks to our producers, Tracy Shera and Olivia Shaw. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like to see us discuss by sending an email to podcast at ADI.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time.